If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from the makers of BBC History magazine. If you've ever wondered who actually made the product you're buying or tried your hand at handicrafts, then you might find something that chimes with you in the Victorian arts and crafts movement. The movement was transformative in our understanding of the importance of the maker in the artistic process. But how did it shape 19th century lives and livelihoods? Who were its key figures? And how much was it associated with radical politics? Suzanne Fagents Cooper joins us for today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode. And putting your questions to her was Eleanor Evans. Welcome to this episode of the History Extra podcast, Everything You Wanted to Know About series. Today we're talking about the arts and crafts movement, and I'm really pleased to welcome back Dr. Suzanne Fagens Cooper, an art historian specialising in 19th and 20th century British art. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. So we're going to start at the top of the subject. What is the arts and crafts movement? So the arts and crafts movement is a phrase that is applied to a whole range of different things that were made and people who were making them in the end of the 19th century and into the middle of the 20th century. It begins in Britain around the circle with uh, William Morris at the centre of it and his family and his friends. But it has a huge impact on the way in which people think about what art can look like, what their homes can look like. And it's a way of beautifying our lifestyles, really. That's what the arts and crafts movement comes down to. And it, so it's not just about, say, the pictures you have on your wall or the, the plates you have on your table, but actually the whole way in which you think about your life and the relationship between your home life and your work life. But it really is something that, that 
I suppose, burgeons in the 1880s. It comes out of a series of exhibitions from the late 1880s and also a series of publications. The arts and crafts movement becomes something which is international. It's not just sort of London-based or Glasgow-based. It is a way of, of thinking about uh, making textiles, making furniture, making whole houses, making gardens that spreads into Sweden, it spreads into America, it spreads into Japan. So there are all these threads that we can follow when we, we're trying to understand what people meant, say around 1900, 1910, when they talked about arts and crafts. Well, there are lots of clues in your answer there to our next question, which is from Ron Porteous on Facebook, who asks about the name. He says, Arts and Crafts seems a, a bit like an odd name for the movement. So how did this name come about and why did it stick? So the Arts and Crafts movement takes its name from a very specific exhibition, which was set up in 1888 by May Morris, who was William Morris's daughter, and his friend Walter Crane. And it was called the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society. And what they were trying to do is to sort of think differently from the the paintings exhibitions. So there was already a very strong tradition in London of exhibiting watercolours, oil paintings, sculpture. But they were recognising that there were people making beautiful things, making beautiful decorated pianos, beautiful stained glass, textiles, ceramics, and there wasn't really a place to showcase all of this. So the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society forms um, in the late 1880s. They exhibit in the new gallery, which is usually used for paintings, but they take it over and it's filled with the most wonderful objects, mostly designs for the home, some designs for churches. And on the back of that, they sort of generate a whole wave of, of other exhibitions and other designers who come to see it. And people who think, yes, I, I, I want my house to look like this, but also I've got the skills. I can also call myself an artist. And I think that's one of the big changes that rather than people only being called artists if they're working as an oil painter or a watercolorist actually you know someone like Kate Faulkner or Lucy Faulkner they're good friends of May Morris they're making designs on ceramics they're making designs on furniture they are also artists and so it's expanding this idea of what makes a beautiful home and that it's one of the problems is arts and crafts then tends to get associated with something amateur and maybe not not terribly good, maybe not terribly neat and tidy. And there is this element which is non-perfectionist. There is an element which is about self-expression from the beginning. But I think it's also, you know, with a lot of these, particularly women artists, they have amazing skills. And this is the first opportunity for them to feel that they are part of a community of skilled people and they can claim the name of artist. I guess we'll go into this in a short while. Can we touch a little more on what this association with women's art forms means for the movement, perhaps in its heyday and then later on? There have always been women around William Morris, who is this kind of the, the central figure, you know, reading William Morris, meeting William Morris, having William Morris designs in your home is one of the, the entry points for becoming part of the arts and crafts movement. So his wife and his daughter's you know, have always been part of that making of these beautiful things, usually textiles, but also other things. 
And women have always decorated ceramics. They've always made textiles. Uh, they've always been involved in furniture making. That is not new. But what is new is giving them names and saying this person designed and made this beautiful thing. So women at the very beginning of the kind of formal idea of the arts and crafts are there. And then the men get a bit agitated about this. And there's a group that's set up in the mid-1880s called the Art Workers Guild. And this is a whole group of men only, who a lot of them are architects, but also designers. And they want to make a nice little club, bringing together all their skills. And, and the Art Workers Guild, it's still going and it now admits women, but it didn't in the earliest days. So that's when someone like Mae Morris says, but I'm just as qualified, I'm just as good as you are. And so she steps in and with Walter Crane, they set up their exhibition society and they encourage, I mean, Mae Morris has been making textiles with a group of women for sale and for commissions for many years. And they have, you know, these beautiful wall hangings or curtains or tea cloths purses, clothes, their costume, the things they wear. This becomes part of the arts and crafts look, lifestyle. And there's a visibility there and a sense of pride in, in their work, which the women have always done it, but this is the first time they can really step into the limelight. And I think it's very interesting what William Morris says in the very early days when they set up the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, because he's actually quite unsure about whether it will work. Uh, I think because he's worried that there's going to be too much sort of amateur things going in there. He says the general public don't care one damn about the arts and crafts. The rest of the work will be of a amateurish nature. I must say I rather dread the idea of it. So in the earliest days, even William Morris is not sure there's enough good material out there. But his great friend Edward Byrne-Jones goes along to this first exhibition and he recognises the impact that Morris and... Morris and Company and Byrne Jones and Rossetti and all their friends have had since they founded their little business in Red House in 1860, which is the kind of core of the arts and crafts. And Byrne Jones says, amongst some stuff and nonsense, there are some beautiful things, delightful to look at. And here for the first time, one can measure a bit the change that has happened in the last 20 years. So there is this sense that the arts and crafts movement has been kind of under the radar since the 1860s and from the mid-1880s, it kind of really bursts on the scene. There are enough people, it's got enough momentum to really make a huge impact. It becomes the British style. It becomes the way in which British art is sold to the rest of the world. And then it becomes commercialised. And so you get this kind of, this interesting tipping point where, it, you know, people start to worry that it's kind of arts and crafts is sold out. It happens with so many radical movements, doesn't it? But the arts and crafts is one of them. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. That's a really great sense of the splash it makes and the impact it has. Thank you so much. If we can look a bit more what came before it, just briefly. So we've got a question from George Haig on Facebook. Thank you for your question, George. He asks, to what was the movement reacting? The Arts and Crafts really begins in the 1860s as a reaction against consumerism, capitalism, the technological changes, industrialization in mid-Victorian Britain. And it's trying to get back to the handmade and the authentic. So if you can imagine going into the Great Exhibition of 1851, all made of iron and glass and an amazing feat of engineering, but so different from a stone-built building or wooden-built building. This is industry put to use and to good use to bring all these people together. But inside, it's full of things that are perfect and often lying about what they are. So it's papier-mâché that's made to look like lacquer. It's iron made to look like stone. It's glass that is made to look like diamonds. And it's all very clever. And it couldn't have been done before the Industrial Revolution. And it was first done in Britain. And everyone got very excited about all this perfection and the, the lavish use of decoration and that you could get machines to do amazing things. But there's a sense that you lose the connection with the humane or the human. You know, the people who are making it have very little say in what these things look like or who they're sold to. So the arts and crafts movement, you know, wouldn't exist without the Industrial Revolution. It's an absolute reaction to in- industrialization, to commercialization and to this sense that there is a disconnect between the people who are making things and the people who are using them. So what makers like William Morris and his friends initially, and then people like Charles Ashby, Jimson and the Barnsleys, even uh, the Macintoshes in Glasgow, what they're trying to do is to get back to something where the designer and the maker are really closely connected, where one person sort of oversees the whole of the process of production. So it's not like passing down a a production line. It's it's something that's kept small-scale production, workshop production, skilled production, and then not lying about what you're making. So if you make a table, you show the wood, you show the joints. You don't then cover it in veneer necessarily, or you don't cover it in paint and make it look like marble. So you get a use of the sort of truth to materials, which is this big phrase, truth to materials, revealed construction, and a a sense that it's grounded. So the work tends to have an organic feel about it, using natural forms, natural images, and often natural colours. So, I mean, that covers a whole range of things. It could be a piece of glass. So if you take something like the glass that Philip Webb designed for Red House, which is William Morris's first house, William Morris didn't want perfectly cut lead crystal glasses or faceted and made by machine or even made by some very skilled hand. What he asked Philip Webb to make were these glasses which show that the glass is slightly imperfect. It's got bubbles in it. It's fluid. It's not fancy. It's just doing the job. And that's what it comes down to. It's a simplicity 
a simplicity of approach, certainly in the early days. Of course, it gets more complicated, but pairing things back to essentials. What is this, you know, seeing the wood, seeing the glass, seeing the hand involved in it. That is what the arts and crafts movement starts out as. That's lovely. Thank you for that example of the glass. And you've mentioned the tactile em- embroidery and the wall hangings and things like that. Do you have any uh, favourite examples or anything that sort of illuminates that aspect of the, the art a little more? There are some very beautiful bed curtains that are held at Kelmscott Manor. And they are embroidered with a poem written by William Morris. And the design of the, the bed curtains is designed and made by May Morris. And these things take a long time to make. You know, they take years. The whole bed furniture took years to make. But it's, you know, it's personal. It relates to the place. That's really important. The idea of vernacular, the idea of being associated with the right environment. So when you're designing a home or whether you're designing what goes in the home, it responds to the history of that place maybe the folklore of that place, the stories that are told, and also the materials that are available and have always been used around that place. So something like those bed hangings relates directly to the images that you see outside Kelmscott and also this idea of being, you know, cosied up inside a bed by drawing the curtains around you. It's all very specific to that place. And I think this is what makes the arts and crafts movement so interesting, is that when it is adopted in different cities and different countries that each set of artists then responds to their own background, their own history, their own materials. So what you get in Scotland looks different to what you get in Vienna and what you get in Chicago. All of these places have their arts and crafts movements, but they have that sense of being local and responding to what is the needs locally whether it's sort of timber you use, whether it's the skills that are already there, whether the skills that you have to bring in, whether it's the weather, you know, whether you need to hunker down, whether you can be outside. You know, when you look at someone like uh, Karl Larsson's house, Karl and Karen Larsson have their home in Sweden and they make this home beautiful inside, but they also tell people about what the house looks like. Karl Larsson makes images of it, book illustrations, and publishes them very successfully. So they become a kind of show home for the arts and crafts in the early 20th century in Sweden. But that's a very different sort of lifestyle to the one you would have at Kelmscott or the one you'd have in Glasgow. So it becomes, you know, its own, its own thing, but it's still part of the arts and crafts tradition. So from what you've said, it sounds like very accessible and people can make make of it what they find in their own lives. But I guess a certain amount of it still relies on the, the, the free time to create, the free time to dedicate to these things and also money for the materials as well. We've got a question here from Hannah May Sunshine on Instagram who's asked, was it ever affordable for ordinary Victorians? It's a really good question because certainly someone like Charles Ashby, who takes his workshop from the East End out to Chipping Camden in the Cotswolds, he makes a a decision that he is going to design and create high-end products. They're going to be luxury. They're going to be expensive. They're going to be, you know, jewellery, metalwork, fancy furniture. But what he sees is it's a total product. So he's making a better life for his working people the people who are making it. And that's what matters, not necessarily the end product, but the process. So he has a a very deliberate intention to recruit young men, mostly from deprived backgrounds 
to train them and to give them a better working environment and to make beautiful things. So from his point of view, it's not the home it goes to at the end, it's the home life of the people who are making it that is the priority. However, I think that we do see that there are certain attempts to make things affordable or at least accessible. So firstly, many of these designs are published. You can get them in magazines, you can see them in book illustrations. So if you want to try particularly the textiles at home, there's nothing to stop you. You know, if you have the hand skills and many women already did, if you wanted to try stenciling, for example, that's really low cost, you know, you paint and the stenciling, transform your, you know, drawing room or whatever, then you can try that. And some of the designers, including Morrison Company, they produced uh, embroidery kits. So you would get a cushion cover, the pattern on the cover would already be laid out, the embroidery silks would be included in the kit, and, and some of the stitches would be put in already. So you could see how you make it. And that's it still, you know, requires leisure and requires the money to go to Morrison Company or buy it from a catalogue. But it's kind of the middle class possibility. I think the other way that it's affordable is that it doesn't have to be brand new, that a lot of the houses that you see, the interiors, it's a really eclectic mix of old and new. So you can buy antiques, you can buy secondhand chairs, secondhand tables, often sort of farmhouse chairs, tables, furniture, whatever. And that sits beautifully within the arts and crafts tradition. So it's it's the recycling, the reusing is important. And blue and white pottery, which you might be able to buy, it's not expensive, it's not the fancy new stuff, it's the old 18th century, early 19th century country blue and white pottery. Again, that becomes part of the, the arts and crafts interior. So there are ways for people to adopt this. If you want to change your garden, for example, you can have an arts and crafts garden by using you know, traditional cottage garden flowers and not the big fancy dahlias and chrysanthemums and pelargoniums, you know, but actually having lavender and poppies and cornflowers. These are also part of the arts and crafts mentality. And you know, the relationship between the outside and the inside is very important. So an arts and crafts garden is as much of a, a thing, is as much of a product of the arts and crafts, is, is as beautiful as a, an arts and crafts tapestry. You know, you can, you can start outside. On that then, vid is obviously being made available in lots of different ways to lots of different people. We've got a question here from Adrian Moore on X, who's asked, what were its links with socialism? So there are very interesting connections between radical politics and the arts and crafts movement. It's not for everybody. Some people just really like the look of it. They like having William Morris wallpaper or Voise wallpaper or Walter Crane wallpaper because it looks pretty and it reminds them of, you know, a country walk. But for many people, and I think this is what makes the arts and crafts different from, for example, Art Nouveau, because it's sometimes quite difficult to visually say, is this design Art Nouveau or is this design arts and crafts? And Mostly it comes down to the intention of the designer and maker and how they think about the process and who is making it and who is buying it. So for William Morris, he began as a designer. In fact, he began as a poet, but he then became a designer and he became a very successful designer. But he recognised, first of all, that he was often interfering with older buildings that you know, they were being conserved or kind of restored in an unsympathetic way. And he started his kind of uh, political 
education, I suppose, by thinking about our relationship between now and the past. But then he was thinking about the relationship between the maker and the product. And he read a lot of Ruskin. In fact, basically everybody involved in the arts and crafts movement reads a lot of Ruskin. John Ruskin, who is a slightly older generation, starts as an art critic and becomes very strong antagonist towards the capitalist consumerist system of the 19th century. So there is this underpinning of radical thinking, which is that you don't need so much stuff, have fewer things but better made and made in conditions that actually are dignified. The dignity of labour is really important. So that's the kind of kernel of it. And not everybody then followed it through. But if you follow that through, that means we have to change the way in which our workshop systems are organised. We can't have mass industry because that dehumanises the makers. We can't be making stuff that is not necessary, is not sustainable, is not use, you know, useful in the long term. Things made out of natural materials that are sustainably made, that is also really important. And then you get this idea that we want to improve everyone's lives. It's no good it just being for the elite. It has to be a grassroots change. And so William Morris was working for the revolution. He was working for a socialist upheaval in politics, in the way in which we organise our houses, we organise our family lives, all of these things. He was adamant that the revolution was necessary. Obviously, this is quite difficult if you're trying to then sell luxury goods to the upper middle classes because they don't necessarily want a revolution. But a lot of people were reading John Ruskin and feeling that call to action. A lot of people were reading Morris. So Walter Crane was part of that socialist movement. So was Philip Webb. They were active in politics as well as in design. And I think the really interesting moment is when it actually becomes part of the suffrage movement, the votes for women movement, because you get this real shift in dynamics for women too. So if you think about someone like Mae Morris, she is making textiles, beautiful textiles, but she's also running the socialist choir for the the local socialist party in Hammersmith. She's running a socialist library. She is out there speaking, doing lecture tours. So she's one figure who steps out of the workroom and into the public space. But you also have this amazing sort of shift. All these women who think, I know how to make beautiful things, beautiful clothes, beautiful textiles. And when they start to have the suffrage marches, the suffragette marches in the early 20th century from 1908, you have this mass of women on the streets protesting for the vote. And what they do is that they dress beautifully, often things they have embroidered themselves, jewellery that they bought from friends, you know, adopting the arts and crafts, making of beautiful things. And their banners that they are carrying with them, these are gorgeous and extremely skilled in the way they're made and radical. And I love that, that they take their, their needlework skills And they've been making cushions and, you know, nice little aprons and things for the church. And they just say, no, we can shift this and we can now take these banners out into the streets. And so someone like Mary Lowndes, who is a really important textile designer for the suffrage movement, is making, you know, all these designs for banners and women are taking the designs home and stitching them and carrying them. Silk and they're gorgeous. And some of them are currently on display in um, Newnham College, for example, in Cambridge. So. You know, these things, 
I think, show how, yeah, the revolution can be beautiful. That's how it was packaged. Brilliant. Well, I hope some listeners are off to see those uh, those banners shortly. We, we've got a question here from Homemade on Instagram, who has asked about key figures other than William Morris. I know you've you've already given us a lot of names, but is there anyone yet that we haven't spoken about who you think deserves highlighting here? I think that a lot of this comes down to the fact that people did read William Morris, so you can't escape him. He is a, a central figure. You have to acknowledge that wherever you were in the world, if you were engaging with the arts and crafts movement, you were also engaging with William Morris. I think someone like Phoebe Anne Traquair in Scotland is an interesting figure because it's about the the materials she's using as well as the the way she uses it. So enamelling, for example, in jewellery is really important. It's an old technique, but it's revived by the arts and crafts. And you can get these wonderful colours in it. It's coloured glass, but beautifully sort of put onto a, a, a a metal backing so you can make jewellery, you can make chalices and cups and, and tableware, you know, very high end, but very, very beautiful. And she also works on murals. And this idea of decorating large spaces, I think, is really important that you are taking the art out into into spaces where people can encounter it and be kind of wowed by it. So, you know, she is somebody who obviously there's been a lot of interest in more recently. I think that for me, one of the people I'd I'd like to get to know more is Janet Ashby, because she is Charles Ashby's wife, very young woman. He he basically romanced her by giving her copies of Morris and and Ruskin to read. That was the way he, he caught her affection. And I think what is, is interesting there is that she adopts quite early on the different ways of, of dressing. So she has her hair cut shorter and she um, wears sandals and she doesn't, you know, she, she takes her corset off and all this idea of being able to enjoy your body because there is this sense of, be, you know, the outdoor space about being able to dance and sing and be in the open air. This is also part of the arts and crafts that, you know, you're freeing the mind, you're freeing your hands, but you're also freeing your whole body. And and the Ashby's, I think, have a very unusual relationship, partly because it's pretty clear that Charles Ashby, C.R. Ashby, was gay and he surrounded himself with young men. But he, he says, you know, there will be many comrade men, but there was only one comrade wife. And so... That's how he, Janet accepted that. And so they have lots of, you know, holidays on the river and they take the men of the workshop out into the countryside for holidays. And then they finally move everybody out. Who wants to come to Chipping Camden? So they leave the East End and they move to Chipping Camden. And that's a huge undertaking for any family, you know, being uprooted like that, but to, to take not just the family, but all your colleagues as well and their families and take over, because we tend to think of, you know, the Cotswolds now as terribly wealthy and, you know, accessible. But at that point in the early 20th century, you know, many Cotswold villages and towns were isolated. They didn't have good transport connections. There was a lot of rural poverty. And places like Chipping Camden, there had used to be industry there. There'd been a silk mill, but that had failed some years before. So, the Ashby's kind of take on that silk mill and revitalise it, move into some of the cottages that are empty, kind of bring life back into the town. Not always comfortably, because maybe the rural poor don't want to have a load of Londoners show up on their doorstep. There is a tension there. It's not perfect, but it's interesting how 
these dynamics can can play out. So, yeah, there was this idealism about the arts and crafts that if you all move into the countryside and get a cottage and, you know, wear your sandals, it's all going to be fine. And for some people it was, and for some people it wasn't so much. So from what you've been saying, it's it's so tied up inextricably with these ideas of how people can live and building lives themselves that have different types of meaning and, and in art and that sort of thing. We've got a question here from Adrian Moore who asks, what are the best remaining examples of the arts and crafts movement outside of purely domestic or residential architecture? To what extent was it used on civil and commercial buildings? Are there any examples there? Well, this is a really interesting question because it is predominantly domestic. So even big houses like Philip Webb's Design for Standen or Rod Martin, which is Ernst Barnsley's design in the Cotswolds, these are still homes. I think it doesn't translate terribly well into big civic buildings. I mean, the, the closest I can get to sort of a commercial building is something like Liberties of London, with their sort of mock Tudor frontage that they have, which is still there. And we still, you know, can enjoy it. And this idea of it being, you know, oldie worldy, you know, an artificial old world vernacular design. So that comes close. There are places like, well, there, there was the uh, Glasgow School of Art designed by Macintosh, which you could argue is arts and crafts. You could also argue is Art Nouveau. And obviously that sadly is a ruin now. I think the best way to see the arts and crafts architecture on a large scale is in churches, because there was a huge push at the end of the 19th century to still to build new churches and to restore old churches. Often these are not just designed by the architect, but the whole interior is, you know, there is a, a, a focus on the arts and crafts. And it's partly because quite a lot of church men, clergy, as it was at the time, they love the beautifying of their churches for, for God's sake. But they also are excited by the opportunities for arts education, I suppose we'd call it, for the mass of people, particularly in London, but also in places like Birmingham, where you, you know, the clergy are looking to educate and to beautify people's lives, where they see degradation in the streets. I mean, there is a, a book written um, in 1883, just before the arts and crafts movement is really sort of in full flow, called The Bitter Cry of Outcast London, which just lifts the lid on the atrocities of poverty in the East End of London. And that drives a lot of university educated men to go into the east end of london and try to better people's lives there is this sort of university settlement movement one of the things you can see still in london in tavistock square is the mary ward building which is part of the university settlement sending educated young men graduates into uh, that part of london to to teach the working people of london about Ruskin often, you know, someone like C.R. Ashby, his classes were on Ruskin and Morris, because of course they were, but also to teach them new hand skills. So you've got places like the Mary Ward House, which was a, you know, a lecture theatre and meeting rooms. But you also have the big churches like Holy Trinity, Sloan Street, which, you know, has a massive Morris and Company East End windows. You know, it's filled with Burne Jones figures. You've got lots of metalwork, also by, you know, friends of Morris. And it's kind of a, it's a total work of art, this Gesamtkunstwerk, which is part of the idea of the arts and crafts that you surround yourself, you beautify everything. You've also got Westminster Cathedral, the Roman Catholic Cathedral in London, is also, you could argue, an arts and crafts building. It's got elements by Jimson and the Barnsleys, who are, you know, 
absolutely square, straightforward arts and crafts designers. And this move towards the Byzantine style and use of brick, I think, is is an interesting sort of take on the arts and crafts. There's a lovely Roman Catholic cathedral in Leeds, actually, Leeds Cathedral, which is designed by Greenslade and Eastwood, again, at the very end of the 19th century, on a really odd plot. They were given a very sort of squashed corner space, and they've built this beautiful little cathedral, which is like quite an organic Gothic it's a really interesting sort of move. It's, it's very moving. The, the, uh, the, the surfaces of it have got a lot of, of play of light on them. And the, again, the interior, although it has changed quite a lot, has the basic elements of the arts and crafts, metalwork and stonework in there. So, you know, you can find these, these non-domestic buildings. But like I say, I think by and large, it doesn't translate into the grandiose it's about a simple style, not a, an overblown style. And if you're building a town hall, you want to make it, you know, a great whacking impact. You want it to have massive columns or whatever. The arts and crafts doesn't do that. It wants things to be more sort of subtle and and grounded. That makes a lot of sense, given everything that you, you've said already. And I wonder if we can begin to wrap this episode up with a, with a sense of, of a book ending the period. Are we able to say when this movement starts to end or start to become less popular? You mentioned it becomes more commercialised. What happens towards the end of this movement? I think a lot of arts and crafts designs, the shapes that they were using, the motifs that they were using, sort of slide into the Art Nouveau. So around 1900, 1910, it's quite difficult to pick apart, you know, whether the curls and the, and the fronds and the, and the motifs that are being used, you know, you can categorise any longer as arts and crafts. It continues as a very strong style, I think, right up until the First World War in Britain. And then, of course, everything changes and you get the influx of modernism from France and Germany. And, you know, the people like the Bloomsbury Group in Charleston, in Sussex, you know, in a way they have an arts and crafts mentality that you just, you know, you decorate your whole house, but the colours they're using, the patterns they're using are very different to the ones that would have been seen in the 1880s, 1890s. In America, you get people like Frank Lloyd Wright, who take this right the way through well into the 20th century with the prairie houses. And again, they're responding to the local materials and local needs. But that has a very strong arts and crafts feeling. In Japan, the arts and crafts really doesn't take off until after the First World War in, in Europe. So People start to read Ruskin in the 1920s in Japan. And there's this Menge movement, which is about folk art, you know, using local materials. And, and people like Bernard Leach, who goes over to, to work with Japanese ceramic makers, to work with, uh, you know, in this pottery tradition, and then brings it back to Britain. You know, you can see someone like the art pottery of, of Bernard Leach and Hamada coming over to Britain. In a way, they are the, the last... A generation in Britain of the arts and crafts after the, the First World War. But I think there is a revival, uh, you know, constantly of, of people sort of recognising, even today, you know, being able to make beautiful things, being able to think differently about their lifestyles. So it's not just about buying a William Morris mug. It's about thinking, you know, holistically about what we're buying, how it's made, how we integrate our gardens into our domestic spaces. All of these things are part of the arts and crafts heritage, I suppose. 
Absolutely. And as you've been talking, my mind's been turning to sort of, you know, the sewing bee and the pottery throwdown that are sort of popularising homemade makes, homemade artisans. Can we say that's a, a legacy as well, in a way? I think there is this belief that you don't have to be a trained artist. You don't have to go to art school in order to be skilled in order to be able to make beautiful things for your home. I think there is an issue about how you yeah, how you then sell that. I mean, we had the problem even in the very early 1900s. So one of the, the ways in which you can tell if an arts and crafts piece of metal is, you know, handmade is you can see the little hammer marks on it. It's called planishing. And you can see the tiny little sort of dents. And then commercial makers uh, just started doing that by machine. So it looks like it's handmade, but actually it's machine made. So we we have to think about the whole process and not just about the end product. And I think that's what defines the arts and crafts movement. It's about the maker and their connection with the object. So yes, if you want to make your own pottery, then you can be part of that tradition. If you want to create your own amazing embroidered collars for your dresses, then that's also part of the tradition. If you want to plant a cottage garden, I think you can say that's also, you know, an arts and crafts event. It's a way of of stepping outside the factory made and being, you know, aware. It's about being aware of of the materials and the processes and enjoying that sense that you are still learning. We are still learning from the makers of the 19th century. We can still read them and and learn from them and find their their works inspiring and beautiful. And hopefully this will carry on, you know, for for many years we can keep sharing these stories. That was Suzanne Fagents Cooper, historian of 19th and 20th century art. Suzanne also recently appeared on our podcast to discuss another group of Victorian artists, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Just search for the Pre-Raphaelites, everything you want to know, wherever you get your podcasts to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.